0: Sitting here, ready for another episode of the Mintrish Military Podcast. And my sidekick, Paul. Hey, how's it going, guys? And uh, we have been like uh, doing a lot of great in studio shows and um, not without problems, definitely. Yeah, technical advisors. Yeah. So, um, someone who is joining us now um, is, uh, you know, we, we actually sat down yesterday and tried to do a podcast. And it didn't work, or day before yesterday. See, I've lost my days already. Time warp. And, uh, (laughs) yeah, and we're now trying to redo, which is always going to be fun, because the first one didn't quite turn out the way we wanted to. As a matter of fact, uh, I think we caught 8 minutes and 44 seconds of a one-hour discussion before we realized, and we weren't even done, Um, you know. So, anyway, John, John Rainwaters, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks. Thanks for having me again. Yes. Again.
0: (laughs) It's one of those things.
1: It works out well being the pilot that has to redo it because I get to come in here and talk about myself again. So I appreciate the
0: opportunity. <laughs> well, so, um, John, I didn't know this until uh, I probably was about two months ago or three months ago, and we've been trying to make this happen. Uh, neighbor across the street who also knows John. And I think Kyle knows everybody in the neighborhood. Yeah. And, uh, we both live in the same neighborhood and he happened to mention that. And ever since then, we've been trying to pull this together. John has his own podcast and is successful in his own right. And so it was like, you know, it just makes sense for us to get together and for you to talk about your background in history. And one of the cool things when you got out or right before you got out, one of the things you did as an F-16 pilot is you started going around and, and taking the roadshow and going out with other pilots and everything, but you put the F-16 through the works, and um, I'd like for you to you know kind of talk about that because I think – you know, most people, that's the closest they get a chance to see, you know, an aircraft like that is through air shows. So, you know, whether it's the Thunderbirds, the Blue Angels, whatever the case may be, that's kind of what you were doing, but in a different level. Not necessarily with like Thunderbirds or Blue Angels. Yeah, my flight suit wasn't fitted. So, <laughs> Is that the yeah, difference? Yeah, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> you no, know, I, was, I was really fortunate. My, my last two and a half years on active duty was being the F-16 demonstration pilot, which involved traveling around all across the globe. And flying different air shows. I think all said and done, I flew just over 50, somewhere over 50 air shows and a bunch of flyovers and things like that. So incredible opportunity. It's not why I joined the Air Force, but at the end, it was a great opportunity to go out there and showcase what the Air Force has, what it does and connect with the populace, right? Because like you said, most people will never get to go onto a military base. Most people won't even get to talk to someone or know someone who is in the military, Now that I do recruiting, that's a big thing, right? Mm -hmm. Coming out of World War II and Vietnam, almost half of Americans had some direct relative that served in the military. Yeah. Nowadays, it's somewhere like 15, 17 percent. So to go out and do an air shows is really important to let people know, hey, you know, this is your Department of Defense. This is what it's capable of, and these are the opportunities that are out there for young people who are looking to join and serve a greater purpose than just themselves. So I was fortunate and go put the F-16 through its paces across the globe.
0: Well, I think what's also nice about that and yeah, you know, the fact that you mentioned recruiting, you guys have been struggling to find recruits and we kind of hit on this, you know, a um, little bit off air and on air, but you know, this is where you kind of need Tom Cruise and the movie <laughs> to come back to help you with that because, you know, everybody, what they've seen is all the ground action, you know, within right. the war and they forget that there is even in some cases... Uh, fighter, you know, pilots like yourself that are out there readily and standing by and still training and still doing missions and everything else, you
1: know? Yeah, it's kind of odd, at least for me, right? I mean, I'm slightly biased because I come from the fighter pilot community, Uh, but it is one of those things for quite a while we've been struggling to fill fighter cockpits. There's a lot of variables that go into it, Uh, but like you said, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, there are fighters flying around different areas of operation doing the nation's business. So uh, when I was in Operation Inherent Resolve, our unit dropped the most precision-guided weapons of any F-16 unit in the history, right? And then the next unit showed up behind us, dropped even more than us, and the subsequent one dropped even more than all of us. So really busy, but you don't hear or see any of that stuff Mm -hmm. in the news. Uh, And it's just one of those things, again, multitude of reasons of why we are where we are today in our current fighter pilot shortage. But it's one of those things we have to get out there and we have to educate and let people know, hey, there's opportunities out here and it could be a potentially great career and go serve your country.
2: Now, do you have difficulty finding recruits because the standards are so high or because the, the criteria is so specific?
1: You know, that's a good question. I think obviously the standards are high. Uh, the big thing we say is propensity. So, propensity to serve. So, you know, the military has broken down the numbers. We know how many young people are, are eligible to serve as far as age. You start whittling that down to medical education, haven't had a felony, don't use drugs. And then you get a very small pool of like 25,000 and then it's propensity to serve. So how many people want to go out there and serve? How many people had a relative, right? And that number has shrunk, as I already mentioned.
0: That's already the criteria just to find somebody who's interested in the military. But now you're trying to take that population down to at least an F-16 Fighter, pilot, yeah, capable. so
1: it just yeah, it starts whittling <laughs> yeah. its way down. and it, it, I mean, it's a complex problem, and I think we talked about it in the previous episode. But when it comes to, like, hey, you finally get to someone who's in pilot training, we even have issues of people who go to pilot training that don't want to be fighter pilots. Like, for me, that's all I wanted to go do. But when you get someone who's in pilot training going through the course and they're doing well, I'm like, no, nah, I don't want to go do that. And it comes down to I think there's a lot of misnomers about the fighter pilot community. Mm-hmm, we can mm-hmm. d- you know discuss that. It's a lot. It's definitely a lot of work. It's very mission oriented. Uh, some people want to go travel the world, which we have planes that go and do that. In the fighter world, you're really not going to go travel the world. You're going to go travel to a spot in the world, and then you're going to operate in that region for a little bit, and then you're going to come back home. It's just a little bit different, so it appeals to different people. So why,
2: yeah, why wouldn't somebody want? Because to me, like. I'm kind of a high-speed guy, and if yep. I was smart enough then I didn't have to be in the Army, <laughs> like I, I would look up in the sky, we'd get fast movers overseas. I'm like, man, those guys are the coolest guys.
1: Yeah, and then you meet me, and you're like, yeah, that's what <laughs> uh, I should rephrase that. Those guys have the coolest job. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. When you walk around a fighter squad, and you really see. But, no, um, I think it does come down to, for, for me, and the advice I always give to young people going through pilot training now is – pick something, pick a mission set, right? We have different planes that do different missions in the air force, just like any other branch the weapon system we're talking about. Uh, the fighter world is very mission oriented. You know, I joined because of a very specific event and what I wanted to do. And there are people like I mentioned, and again, there's nothing wrong with it. Their goal is to go travel around the world or to live in certain spots. And maybe a C-17 is only located at base X, Y, and Z. And they don't want to go live in the middle of nowhere and fly a fighter. Um, and all those things come down to it. But again, for me, it's like very mission oriented. That's where I find I get a lot of fulfillment from and probably, you know, Paul, you're the same, um, with that. So I think, again, everyone just kind of ticks a different
2: clock. Now there's some misconceptions I think, or some preconceived notions like you have to be under a certain height to be a fighter pilot. You have to have perfect vision. You have to have like some physical criteria that I think people disqualify themselves from. Like as do you have to be under a certain height? Yeah, so that's and a good. perfect vision.
1: That's a good question. So uh, I think the eyesight is one that really has gotten people, at least initially, who haven't dug a little bit further. Yeah. So correctable to 2020 is a requirement, and then I have a lot of buddies who've had LASIK and PRK surgery to like oh, correct so that's their vision.
0: That's a key. That's a correctable too. Right. So a lot of people, I think you're right, disqualify themselves because they they hear they think 2020, not right. correctable to 2020. And even if
1: you're not, I think 2070 again. Don't like write etches in stone just yet. But 2070 correctable to 2020. So if you're wearing contact lenses or glasses, good to go. Colorblind is a that's going to be a showstopper. You need to see colors. Um, And then there are some things. You know, if you have like a heart murmur, there's it's it's going to be a showstopper. One thing I tell people, uh, especially on my podcast, I've had several guests, and it's funny without even asking them, it's come up in the episode where they weren't qual- medically qualified to even commission as an officer, so they couldn't even go to pilot training.
0: Which is a whole nother thing, yeah. Yeah, but they got a waiver,
1: right? Hmm. There's typically a waiver to everything. To everything, yeah. Again, there are typically. some showstoppers, right. but yeah. I say never take no for an answer, right? You at least need to dig, uh, at least ask the question and probably ask a couple of people respectfully and get some other opinions because you just never know. There's always some different avenue. And actually, funny story, I like, showed up at ROTC. Uh, 30 of us, and one semester, a guy who's probably the most diehard I'm going to be a pilot, this is all I've ever dreamed of, uh, leaves ROTC. He has asthma, so disqualified. Yeah. And then, fast forward uh, five years later, I show up to pilot training. He's sitting there checking in. And he found a guard unit that would hire him, send him through another medical. It turns out he doesn't have asthma, but he didn't take no for an answer. You know, he found another path.
0: Okay. There you go. So, what is the height requirement? Yeah, that's a great question. I don't know.
1: I, I, there, <laughs> I mean, we have academy. Granted, it's not like Division One football. Yeah. But, uh, you know, not SEC football players, but we got football players who fly fighters, mm-hmm. you know, in the Air Force. Most of those guys find their way to the A 10, but I feel like I'm cramped or I was cramped in the F 16. Look, there's not a whole lot of space remaining. And there were guys who were three or four inches taller than me and definitely had like 20, 40 extra pounds. Now flying like in a combat, like, I mean, there's, there's literally no room with the vest. Yeah. So I don't know
0: how those guys fit in the jet, but it's possible. Is there something to do though? Like, uh, from the torso to the, you know, that type of thing too, inseam or whatever. It's um, a sitting height.
1: Um, uh, there is a specified regulation that breaks it down and what it comes down to is the fact that you need a certain amount of space between the top of your head and the canopy should you have to eject. So, Oh, that's what it is. Yeah. So you need to be able to physically fit in there. I thought it was to reach, like, pedals and
0: stuff wow. like that. I, is there a, is yeah. there a reason for that? Think,
1: yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm sure at some point, actually, I had a good friend. She, um, now flying the F-35, was or is five three five two. So she went through F-16, training with me, really short, really small. You always knew when she was flying the jet before you because the rudder pedals were pulled all the way forward and you couldn't get in the jet. <laughs>
0: Um, they don't have the little buttons that says, this is, I'm right. in. And then yeah. when you do it, everything adjusts yeah, for well, you. What are we spending our money on? <laughs> That's have to ask. Heated
1: seats. Yeah, yeah exactly. In air conditioning. Yeah, We'll talk about air conditioning later. <laughs> um, but she transitioned at 35. She was actually delayed transition at 35 for a year because they came out and said, hey, if you're under a certain body weight, which I think was 130 pounds, if you ejected, a very high probability you'll be decapitated. So they went and they fixed that issue and then she was able to go onto it. But there's all, there's reasons like it's a very, you know, flying fighters, um, I I think definitely takes a lot of work just like any kind of mission set. Uh, and there are, we try to mitigate the risk and fly them as safe as possible. But at the end of the day, it's a weapon system. Uh, it's designed to go kill and break things. Uh, and you have to respect it because it can very quickly go South on you uh, and then,
0: Just wouldn't be a good day. When you were doing the air shows, uh, would you say, I'm just curious, between that and, say, your typical, you know, um, typical day as an F-16 pilot, would you say you put the aircraft and yourself through more frequent, if nothing else, challenging experiences in order to demonstrate the capabilities?
1: You know, it depends, right? Most guys who fly the F sixteen, it's a nine G platform. Up until going to be an air show pilot, I pulled nine Gs like once.
0: Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what it, I it yeah. just
1: just touched it, right? Because yeah. when you're going out there and you're fighting one another, you're typically not pulling nine Gs. Uh, so as far as Gs go, it's much higher risk doing the air show, in my opinion, uh, because you're down low at two, three hundred feet. You're still, you know, you're going as slow as one hundred and fifteen miles an hour. Which is not where you want to be in F 16 should you lose a motor and you're going six, seven hundred knots. Uh, so, if you hit a bird going that fast, it's not going to work out well. Or if you G lock, so G induced loss of consciousness, there's no time to recover. And we're also not flying with an auto G cast, which is our auto ground collisions avoidance system. So, it's giving you that last glove save should you G lock flying around. So, there's definitely high risk. Now, if you're going to go fight into a near peer country uh, with other fighters and enemy air defenses, uh, that's much more high risk than flying air shows for sure. Yeah.
2: in Europe, meaning aircraft that are yeah, comparable if, to ours.
1: Yeah. I mean, if we're talking like China or Russia, right? They have fighters, they have surface air missile systems that are very robust and fire pilots that go through training. They're going to present a challenge and it's going to be a little bit of work
2: hmm. for sure. <laughs> I want to, I don't know if I'm allowed to ask how, how comparable are these systems? Like how, how on par with them? I think that we perceive our air power as being the best in the world, the most advanced, and nobody's really that close to us. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, I think you know, there's, there's definitely a lot of material out there about this and a lot of people have spoken about it, especially generals, because it's one of those things, in my humble, lowly opinion, yeah. right? We've been in uncontested environments for the past 20-plus years, where no one's really shooting at us in Syria. Like, you probably can just yeah. make a slight, very small asterisk. Um, but we have freedom of the skies. And we're not used to not having freedom of the skies. But there are adversaries out there who are spending a lot of money, and they're very technologically advanced, and they're producing some capable people, some capable equipment that would present significant challenges. And it goes back to, you know, the F-35, when it was coming online, was just getting so much so much grief in the media mm-hmm. people would say well you you know it's a terrible close air sport platform it it can't replace the a10 well, that's what now it's designed for right like will it fill a mission set that the a10 did eventually doing close air support absolutely but it an a10 can't go survive in downtown moscow or wherever right uh, you need an F-35 to go out there and fight a near-peer
2: adversary. Right. The A-10 is not going to get there.
1: Right. Yeah, it's so it's slow. It's get shot it's out so, of the job, It's so right? slow for all my A-10 buddies that are listening. <laughs> so <laughs> slow.
2: And, and not just the speed, but the technology. You can only patch in yeah. so much new technology into the old airframes, Absolutely. I'm guessing.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, it's obviously a very capable and very robust platform and does incredible work. Uh, and I know coming from the ground, right? Like yeah. that's, everyone wants to see the A-10 show that up. That sound, yeah. yeah. Right? Like it's, it's an awesome plane. I want to shoot the gun. Yeah.
2: I was never <laughs> sad to see <laughs> it coming. <laughs> right? Yeah, like, yeah. yeah. I was like, that thing's old. Yeah. I was like, oh, sweet. This Smoke thing, those guys. This thing is awesome.
1: Um, but you know, the F-16, so the ones I was flying at Shaw, which are block fifties, our newest F-16s for the U.S. inventory. We're still at Lockheed, still making them, um, Most of those rolled off the line between, like, 1990 and 1993. There were a couple 2000 uh, models there. But they're fragged to fly to 2045 at least. And so they're going through constant upgrades. And I can't, you know, like, I've been out of it for 18 months. And, you know, obviously I still have a lot of buddies there. And the thing, it is just rapidly evolving. So the F-16, they're going to keep upgrading. The next thing, they're going to rip all the cables out of it, rip all the computers out of it. It'll be the same inherent mechanics and jet, right, but all the avionics that go into it that make it able to integrate with 5th Gen fighters, make it a more robust air-to-air fighter, air-to-ground fighter uh, will be there. But, you know, the A-10, it comes to, yeah. you can upgrade some things to it, but when it comes to the next fight, it's it probably limited as far as what it can do. That's well, it's 19,
2: you're basing it all on 1960s technology, right? Yeah, it
1: would so. it's be a fun plane to fly, though.
2: Yeah,
0: it's an awesome plate.
2: I want one. It's an
0: interesting question, though, because um, here recently I happened to get around some M1s and me coming from tanks, you know, and, and being one of the first to ever transition from M60A3s to M1s was really cool. But then, you know, recently when I was around it and I was asking some questions and got to, you know, get inside a turret and, you know, crank one up and the whole thing, it was like, this really hasn't changed that much. I mean, we went from 105 to 120s, you know, and, you know, some minor modifications inside and stuff like that. But that's 1982 or 83, right? That's yeah. a long time ago. Would you drive a
2: car from 1982? Probably not. I would have had like a new steering wheel and heated (laughs) seats and upgraded. There were some
0: that were, now the seventies were much better. Eighties, you're right. I probably wouldn't, but yeah, but it's, there's a lot to be said about that, especially when you're going out. Um, it's a little bit different to drive. It's another thing to take it to combat, you know? Well, that's what I mean. Like, yeah, I would do a drive, a 67
2: Cuda for fun. Oh yeah. I don't think I'd drive it to work every day. No. That sounds
0: awful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you certainly don't have all the safety aspects in there, you know, for sure. It's a big gas bill. It is. Yeah, yeah. that's but, one
1: thing. I mean, yeah, you you run the risk, right? And you have to weigh the where what resources do I have?
0: Yeah,
1: what can I allocate? I mean, it's a, it's the problem that everyone has. We'll so,
0: continue to fight that, too, because financially, the de- uh, defense budget is always something that's target one, right. uh, With especially new regime and everything. They look at where dollars are allocated. They look at that defense budget. We don't have the resources and everything else. And that's not a good thing, too, when you're talking about um, our adversaries and, and capabilities and everything else that are constantly changing because they're pushing a majority of their money into that.
1: Yeah, that, and that's the thing, too. Actually, I just read an article this morning. You know, COVID has changed the dynamics,
0: obviously, for everything.
1: The Air Force, I think they've made an assessment that their retention is at an all-time high, right? No one has gotten out, which will then... Space Force, everybody's, uh, you know, everyone outside. Everyone's jumping there. That's, <laughs> who knows? But you know, what it'll end up being is, and I feel like the knee-jerk reaction, right? There's a surplus of bodies, so we'll end up slashing a bunch of people and then there'll be a deficit. And one thing, you know, right as I left F-16, you know, fighter pilot shortage had been ongoing and then a maintainer shortage. And you, you know, how long does it take to create a 10 year, you know, veteran fighter pilot? Well, it takes 10 years, right? And that's, you know, depending on their qualification level, you know, that's probably the tune of four to $20 million worth of training that you've invested in this person. And then when they leave, like the new guy showing up from the B course, the training unit obviously is not going to have that same skill set to fill that void. Uh, And the maintenance side of the house is the same deal. You get guys who are just burnt out. They leave. uh, And then there's no experience to train. And I mean, I saw it and hopefully I think it's getting better. Right. But it's not just a over the night fix. You know, it's going to take a decade to get back up to what we were. Right. Meanwhile, Everything else is going on in the world.
0: Uh, There's there's a lot lot of complex problems. Well, and your community and the air community and stuff, I mean, what we've seen, especially in Atlanta, which is home of Delta, and you end up seeing um, a lot of pilots, Navy and Air Force, who tend to watch the market to see how things are going. And there are periods where demand for pilots within the commercial space uh, a, you know, a retention problem of people walking out the door because they can, they can get the dream job and, you know, and all that kind of good stuff. And so then you've got a backfill. Well, you not only now have that problem and maybe coronavirus is hoping somewhat because the commercial side is not doing as well as it was. Right. But if you're still not getting that fill in the pipeline, you're not, you know, creating that opportunity for the future then we may even see downstream effects from this, from the commercial space as well, uh, because they're used to that constant revolving door and, you know, it it may start changing somewhat.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. The dynamics, I mean, they're ever evolving. COVID is obviously a huge wrench that got thrown into the system, but it's one of those things that it plays out. I think over the the course of five, 10 years where you see this and what it goes back to what Paul's asking with a is why it kind of leads to like why we don't have fighter pilots for the multitude of reasons. But I mean, I think you can draw that all the way back to a surge in Iraq and we're spending a lot of money on body you know, up armor, body armor, right at the right place to go, but it, you know, resources, right. So DOD says, well, we're going to do less training for fighter pilots, right And there. Are, again, this is a very simplistic version of it. Uh, but that then reared its ugly head 10 years down the road when a guy like me, there are I think, 13 F-16 pilots in my year group. Normally, that number's around 90 or 100. 13, and it's normally so, 90. So... Right? Scary. Wow. Yeah, you know, so in the, in those things, again... <coughs> wow. ...then show, you know, and it's just, it's a, it's a multitude of problems that, again, it takes a long time for them usually to appear, even though we know, like, sometimes we know it's going to happen, or people are screaming that it's going to happen, then it happens... Now it's a crisis, and then you know want a Band-Aid fix, and I, in my opinion, it just doesn't happen. I mean, this is a it's a long term problem.
0: Yeah, peer wise, like Navy, is it F fifteen that's comparable to the sixteen, or what? We, what's well, your, well, what's your... well,
1: nothing. But you know, if I had to pick one, <laughs> um, no. So we we have that fifteen as well in the Air Force, but they, the Navy they're that F eighteen. F eighteen, that's right. So, yeah. Two tails, much slower, uglier looking. I used to think the F-18 was a really good-looking plane. And then, like, you get around it after flying the F-16, and you're like, this thing's kind of ugly. Really? But, I mean, I would still go fly it, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah and, again, it comes down to strengths and weaknesses, right? The yeah. F-18 has some strengths that F-16 doesn't. And when it comes down to fighting in a joint fight, knowing each other's strengths and weaknesses and integrating. Again, a lot of my Operation hand Resolve time was doing combined operations with the Navy or
0: our coalition partners, so you got to know how to play with one another. One time, did you ever want to go out there and just land on that football field in a in a rolling ocean? You know, people
1: ask that, and I my response is I want to take off just once, right? No, oh, yeah, that that's pretty cool, but, but you you better be ready for that too. I, right? I want to be close to shore so I can go land on shore. Because <laughs> one, when you land, on the, it off you know, and land right. When you land on the boat, you got to stay on the boat, right? Right. Right. Um, but yeah, that's
2: yeah. full of semen. Yeah, so yeah. I just
1: I want to avoid that. Good point. Yeah, I'm so you. you could helicopter me in, put yeah. me on the deck, put me in the jet, launch. That'd be fun, and go land back on shore. As long
0: as it's close enough that it you you can land on the air uh, runway and step before hitting the water, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. I'm yeah. The, I mean, ten thousand foot runways
1: are my jam. <laughs> you know, I'm not a football field. Yeah, it, it, it's fun talking to my Navy buddies. Um, you know, who are again they, they have the same, you know, same issues we do. I think the Air Force does a better job of at least saying, Hey, we have a fighter pilot retention problem right now. Yeah. The Navy also has that problem, they just don't say it, at least according you know, to the bro level network. Um, but it's interesting to hear them talk about their, their cruises and just landing on that boat. Like to me, I can think of maybe, you know, the the ten times in my F-16 career where my heart rate was like through the roof. Uh, a couple of those involved landing in, like, really squirrely weather with, you know, heavy loads. The Navy, I mean, I feel like that's every single time. every time. It, you yeah. know, like, coming back, like, man, I hope I land on the boat. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm out of gas. I mean, like, it just, it sounds terrible to me.
0: Yeah. Well, when you think about, like, the whole physics and everything that they're doing to do that, I mean, they're coming in hot because if that cable you know, the hook doesn't hit the cable, they got to be going at enough speed or reactionary so that that aircraft, it may take a dip when it comes off the other side, but you hope that it doesn't hit the water, you know, and that's all. Here's the thing really got me when they're describing. So they're very precise
1: when they come up initial for their break. So they fly over the boat and they break uh, and it's all, I mean, they're getting graded and timed every, every single landing. Uh, And I was talking to them, you know, in high seas, Timing the pitch of the bow, right? Stern, whatever, port, starboard, <laughs> you know? The as ship. It, yeah, yeah. The ship. As it's going up and down, um, obviously, it's a big deal, right? Because yeah. as you're shooting the wire, well, it's changing like 15 to 20 feet. And if you misjudge that or mistime that, the boat is rising as you're coming into land. Like the mm. runway just rose 20 feet yep. into the bottom of the jet. Like, I know the gear is robust, but I mean, ripping the gear like so many bad things in my mind could happen there it just
0: sounds like,
1: Thrilling, again, right? Yeah why, yeah. why didn't I join that?
0: <laughs> oh, wait. <laughs> well, let's go to that because, I mean, you went to, you're from here. You're from Peachtree City, um, Georgia and stuff. And if people aren't familiar with Peachtree City, it's one of these communities that was really founded off of Eastern Airlines, Delta Airlines people. And obviously these were avid golfers as well. So yeah. what they did is they started off with not just your average size neighborhood. I mean, these were large neighborhoods. And they would get four, six large neighborhoods that they would put together. And then you'd have a shopping center that supports it. So you have restaurants, you have, um, like a target, a Kmart, uh, a Walmart, or, um, you know, a grocery store, you know, whatever the brand name, you know, they could get in there and such banks, you know, they, it, in other words, they're so sufficient. Right. And they did that like, I don't know, 20, 40 times, John, I mean, throughout the whole Peachtree city, uh, you know, footprint. And then they said, you know what? We're not just going to do that. Let's make golf cart trails to connect everything together, including overpasses that go over the main roads that people drive cars on so they they could get around to... Um, connecting to their friends who may live in one of these other mega subdivision areas that they, I've got Kmart, but I want to go to Target. So I take my golf cart and run down the golf cart trail and tootle on. And, and I mean, this is, this has been going on for 40 years at least, right?
1: Yeah. I want to say Petra city, like the late seventies was like yeah. the first, uh, first development. Like Aberdeen Village, I think was the first one, or it was built yeah. out. They call them villages, you know. Yeah. Were the, were the first one. And then there's still another one that's planned to be built.
0: Yeah. Well, the, and people talk about this. I say something like, yeah, you know, it's Beastry City. Have you ever heard of that? And then, you know, some people say, oh, yeah, yeah. And then other people will be like, no, what? And I'll say it's a golf cart uh, community. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've got one of those. And it's like, no, you, you don't have yeah. one of these. This is not just a community. It's not just a neighborhood. This is a city. You know, cops on golf cart, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. You know, you can. You got to get your golf cart registered. Do you ever have low speed chases?
1: I, I probably. In, in Peachtree City, I guarantee you they do. Yeah. You know, this
0: is just waiting
1: for their moment on that golf cart. So, did you go to McIntosh High School then? Storrs Mill.
0: Okay, so, yeah. ooh, that's the right yeah. word. So, McIntosh High School is uh, right near downtown and everything of Peachtree City and the main, at least the main hub. And um, you go there on a school year period, like say from September to June, and you don't see cars in the parking lot, Paul, which you see is 150,000 golf carts of every shape, color, size, everything else that you could imagine. And kids don't go get their driver's license because they don't need it. I can go to Target, Walmart, the movies, you know, I can go get food and see my friends and everything else in the golf cart. As long as you're 15, is it? I think so. yeah. Yeah. You can drive a golf cart. They bling them out too. Oh, yes. They are decked out. Some of them have, like, oh, no, they all have, like, decked out wheels and everything. Some of them have the televisions and everything as well in the back and the stereo equipment. Oh, oh, yeah, these are rides, man. Sounds awesome. This is not your typical golf cart. It it falls in the realm of first-world problems. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Definitely in that category. Yeah. Car, cart maintenance. Right. Ah, I'm a flat tire. He cart's it's, down. So, so. And, and John, your dad was not a pilot, though. He
1: was not. Yeah, mm. we were the first ones on the block that uh, were not Delta.
0: That had to be weird, though, because I can tell you, when I went to live in this area and stuff, you know, there was a bit of status. Yeah. Yeah. I, I we're was, not supposed to talk about this, yeah, I don't it's, think. It's unwritten. <laughs> and the, uh,
1: you know, I, uh, my upbringing, Yeah, you know, I was very fortunate where I landed, right? Right place, right time. That's that's the theme of my life, I feel like. Uh, but growing up in Peachtree City was phenomenal. Yeah, you know, my dad wasn't a Delta pilot, um, but he saw the lifestyle that Delta pilots had. Most of those in our neighborhood were ex-Air Force, ex-Navy guys. And that's what kind of initially drove me down the path towards aviation um mm-hmm. uh, neighbor took me flying in a piper cub on like a beautiful day when i was like 13 or 14 it was a fall day doors open flying slow like the aviation hook was there i knew i wanted to go fly after that
0: he do a stall or anything like that with you in it i had no idea what it was <laughs> at that point but
1: can uh, you stall piper cub i know you can but no yeah. it's,
0: it's so slow my son-in-law uh, took me yeah. up in some small aircraft and of course he was like uh, he looked over and he goes hey um, you know, we were on the headsets and stuff too, but he looked over and he goes, You, you okay with me uh, doing some practice stuff? And I go, Sure. I mean, I had no idea yeah. what the hell he was really going to do. I just figured he'd, you know, we'd do a little maneuver to left or right or whatever. Next thing you know, the engine shut off. And I'm like, Whoa, yeah. hey, dude, <laughs> man, this sounds weird. I just hear wind and stuff. And he's like, Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm going through the, the whole practice here. And that was, that weirded me out. Yeah, there's some know? fine print
1: sometimes when a pilot says, hey, do you want to try this? <laughs> you want to read the fine yeah. print,
0: you know? So, yeah, you end up uh, going to high school there, and then you end up the Georgia Tech, of course, uh, uh, you know, a university here in Atlanta, a big one, engineer, uh, no, university.
1: Yeah, n- yeah not, not an engineer. Again, right place, right time. Uh, I was fortunate, you know. I had my first flight on September tenth, two thousand one, in high school. You know, the next day it was a big catalyst that said, "Hey, I want to fly and I want to fly and serve our country." I got an ROTC scholarship again, lucky to do that. Um, and going to Georgia Tech, this is one of those things. I didn't really have a mentor when it came down to the details or the nitty gritty, right? I had some guys who had flown in the military, but just like me, you know, it's been twenty years since I did ROTC. So anything I say about ROTC, just throw it out the window, right? Because uh-huh. it's old and outdated. Um, but I didn't have any like real in the, in the weeds mentorship for that. And so I thought you had to be an engineer to be a pilot. So I applied to Georgia tech. I was going to be a civil engineer and I showed up on day one and I found a casual lieutenant. So a guy who just graduated and was waiting to go to pilot training and said, Hey, what are, you know, what recommendations, what tips do you have for me? And his only thing was get a good GPA. And I was like, Oh, I didn't do well in calculus in high school. I'm probably not going to do well in calculus at Georgia Tech. What did you do? He did international affairs. So I said, nah, I don't know what that is, but it seems like that might be a fit for me. Uh, it turns out, I mean, it worked out great. I got a good GPA. Uh, hindsight, you know, if I got hit in the eye with a rock or I lost a pilot slot, I don't know what I'd be doing now. <laughs> probably hungry. But it was, uh, again, I was just fortunate. And, you know, I sought some mentorship and I had some good guidance uh, that kept me on the path that I was I was seeking.
0: Is international affairs very very much equivalent to somebody going to get a degree and say French or you know Spanish or something like that that may not be that useful? Yeah, I'm definitely not going to be invited
1: back to my alma mater now. <laughs> but um, <laughs> no, you know it, it was a really good program. I actually focused on Eastern European security studies. Okay. So there are different things you could do inside there. To me, this, the fall of the Soviet Union and all the ramifications of that were really fascinating. Uh, so, I had some really smart professors, and we did dive down into the weeds, uh, you know, talking nuclear security, biological, chemical weapons, things that happened with the fall of the Soviet yeah. Union that uh, were unplanned or unexpected, right? When yeah. country X just now appears because it's no longer a republic yep. of the Soviet Union, but it has a chemical weapons factory, you know, how do we contain that? What went into that? So, I will say I'd never, i never, I honestly never used my degree probably whatsoever, maybe subliminally or subconsciously, uh, for, you know, my time as an F-16 pilot, but, uh, I definitely learned a little bit about the world and how the world
0: works through it. Yeah. We were talking earlier about F-16 and, in the pipeline and, and how you, you get there. And I know you spent various times, you know, going from, you know, it, getting trained yourself and then being an instructor and, and all of that kind of stuff. But, along that path and journey, what was the attrition rate? Because I can only imagine that it's one thing for you to get to the point where you can actually get there, but then even something like, you know, the G force and stuff when they put you in the room and the guys are passing out and the whole thing. And I think they make funny videos of that so that you could see those later. And yeah, I got one, you get to take it home. Yeah. You know? <laughs> no, no one
1: looks good pulling nine Gs. Yeah. Um, No, I would say, one, I have no idea what the actual attrition rate is, and it's not exact. But there's attrition built into everything all the way up until the point, uh, at least when I was going through, to to introduction of fighter fundamentals. Yeah. So when people show up to pilot training, we know there's going to be a 15% or whatever it might be attrition rate. So a class of 30, you're going to have a couple people that wash out. And then you're going to get to introduction of fighter fundamentals. There is no plan you know, attrition rate out of there, but it still happens. So that's the first time you kind of learn basic tactics in a old type trainer. And then you're going to go into your weapon system, F-16, F-15, whatever it might be. Again, when you show up there, they plan on you graduating. Actually, they have to take it back. IFF, International Fighter Fundamentals, there actually is a massive attrition rate. I forget what that is. But when you get to your F-16 unit or F-16 training the plan is for you to graduate, but yeah. people do run into issues. Um, and I've had several buddies who show up, they're tall, lanky, uh, and for, you know, they're not unhealthy like me with high blood pressure and they have a really tough time pulling G's. Um, and just it's one of those things, a uh, really good buddy of mine actually, you know, he, he struggled with it. He never G locked, but he, uh, had a couple episodes where he had to knock off a fight because he was losing, uh, he was having light loss. And it came down to, he's like, hey, you know, I want to be alive to see my kids grow up. This is probably not where I need to be. And they moved him to another plane. Hmm. So there are scenarios where, where that ends up happening. Uh, it's kind of rare once you yeah, get to your unit that, that happens as well. But guys have G-Lock. We, we've killed a, a decent amount of people in the F-16 specifically with G-Lock. Uh, we now have auto G-cast collision avoidance system. Which is saved? It saved my buddy was the first U.S. save. A lot of our foreign nations who fly F-16s have had it for a while. We've just recently incorporated it into to ours, but um, yeah, it's kind of down the rabbit hole of attrition rate in an F-16 or into kind of any. that can translate across any weapon system.
0: Yeah, and I mean it totally makes sense because of the what you're being asked to do and the type of machine that you're being asked to to drive. You know, when you think about it, like. I'm sure there's certain levels of um, uh, complexity uh, through these different things, and I would imagine you'd probably say from a C-130 or a C-5 or whatever to a F-16, oh, it's major difference. You know, there's a, a lot more that goes in there. Well, I would imagine at least that's the case.
1: I, yeah, I think so, and I know there are obviously studies that are done by this. People, I don't know how tr- true this is, but if they redesign and did a cockpit analysis of F 16 today it would be a two seat variant just because there's so much stuff going on yeah. especially in the wild weasel mission the block 50 mission uh doing suppression of any air defenses yeah. seed there's just a lot that's happening you're doing air to air air to ground you're looking at a multitude of sensors on two different displays right so you have a cycle between them meanwhile you're flying formation with four other f-16s or eight or you're integrated into a large-scale fight of you know 70 plus fighters uh, so it can get rather complex and now that I've flown I'm on the other side flying bigger planes from point A to point B I think it's fair for me to say that like flying the F16 is far more complex than mm-hmm. what I do now yeah uh, there's everything has its challenges right but right. yeah
0: it, there's a lot going on in that 16 for sure Well like when you were doing the air shows you were doing a two seater so is that something that they can like modify with the current um setup
1: so in air shows, the only time I actually flew a two seat was when I had someone in the back seat to give them a
0: familiarization. Oh, so that right. was the only time. It wasn't yeah. like the. I, w- I guess I was thinking like you brought that aircraft, you did the show with that aircraft, and then you might take somebody up as well, kind of thing. That's yeah. all part of the package. Yeah, Same occasionally, like
1: I did the Super Bowl flyover, and we actually flew people in the back seat. You know, they okay. get them the exposure. But for the air show, uh, the configuration that's 16 can change drastically. For air show, it is a clean configuration, so there's nothing hanging on the jet. It's very sleek. And it, you know, it is basically just a rocket motor with fuel and a pilot sitting up there. When you go to combat, you're loading that sucker out with bombs, missiles, like, you know, countermeasuring pods, targeting pods. Like, it's just, it gets a little bit heavier. Mm-hmm. Um, so the two-seat variant, we have those. However, they're not combat coded. Back in the day, like first Gulf War, we actually have an AMRAM kill and a D model, a two-seat variant. Uh, but since then, we don't take it because it's a limb fact because of gas. When you put that when you put that second seat in there, you have to give up something because it's the same, essentially the same plane. So, what do you remove? Gas, um, and then you also take extra air away from the pilot up front. That's what I say. But no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um,
0: so that's why you go into hygiene yeah, and knock yeah, the guy in the back yeah, out. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah the, the air
1: show piece. I think I flew eighty plus people in the back seat. Yeah, and that's you know showing, you know, allowing the maintainers, the people who really make it happen. Uh, they're the ones that are humping it fixing the motor, fixing all the stuff that I broke, doing the demo, uh, putting in the extra hours. It's to give them, it's a reward yeah. with air quotes uh, to go ride
0: in the backseat. When actually, they get out, do you give them little wings and everything like you yeah, do in the airline? I guess I wasn't
1: so kind. That's
0: all.
1: <laughs> <laughs> try to go rip their face off,
0: laugh, make about, them puke or laugh fall. about it, yeah, yeah, right. make
1: them puke, <laughs> and then say, hey, good job. Here's your wings. Yeah, here's your wings. <laughs>
0: Man, dang. I missed an opportunity there. Uh, totally. You wanted to ask a question somewhere about the A10, uh, and I don't remember what it was.
2: Yeah, how does the A10, like what's our go-to cast platform now? Well,
1: it depends So um, on what the environment is. When uh, I was there for Operation Air Resolve... The F-16 for most of it, or F-15Es, because the ability to move large distances very fast. I think, I mean, you can attest, right? Like you want to see an A-10 show up overhead if you're in it, I would imagine. Um, But for, you know, and it goes back and forth again. But like Afghanistan for a while, it was only F-16s in theater because you needed the ability to go from the southern part of the country to the northern part of the country, in 20 minutes versus an A-10 in four days and 32 minutes, you know? <laughs> um, but, yeah that, yeah, that gun, I mean, it just destroys everything. Yeah.
2: So it's it's the armament, really. It's the the weapons capability that really it's, makes the A-10 suitable for CAS?
1: Uh, I mean, the gun, obviously, it's built around the gun. We're carrying essentially the same you know, bombs, right, when it comes down to it. Um, but the A-10, you know, if you look at an F-16 strafing, what well, it's called zoroing the target. Yeah. So you roll in on a target doing a high angle strafe. Uh, there's a decent chance that you're going to zoro the target, right? You're going to draw a Z or something. Because when you squeeze the trigger, um, you know, it's loud, can't see. You're also probably starting around 350 knots and you're accelerating out past 400 and something knots. But there's a flight control logic that changes in that, right? So, you're like, I know what the feel is. The F 16 side stick doesn't move, it moves about an eighth of an inch, right? So, different than what? Well, it's just all pressure. Yeah. Uh, so, I say it's tough. The A 10, however, as it's rolling in down the chute, its flight controls lock out. So, when it points at it, it's going to shoot whatever it points at. So, it's okay. pretty cool. And then it's also slower going down the chute, as we call it, uh, and it can strafe twice. You know, an F 16, if you're going 450 knots, you don't have a whole lot of time on final to one, acquire the target, put the thing on the target, shoot the target, and then escape off you're the just target. Not,
2: you're not putting as much lead on target.
1: Yeah. Yeah. A10's got like 900 For- something. Yeah. <laughs> and it's also shooting a water bottle, too, right? Yeah, that thirty millimeter. It's impressive. I, I want to shoot the gun. I want to shoot the gun. I think everybody wants yeah. to
0: go shoot the gun. But then I want
1: yeah. to. But then I want to
2: fly. Fast. I want to I just want to watch you shoot. The yeah. Gun. yeah, yeah. Come yeah. cast me, dude. Yeah. Cool. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Have you had a lot of guys that's on your show that flew the A ten? Because I hear this on occasion of ground crew guys finally get to meet those guys who did the gun runs for them, and it's and it's pretty wild. I don't know. I think you, did you get a chance to do that, or uh, I got, I got was it f- the Apache? Um, I can't remember. No, I
2: got to fly in a AC-130. Oh, on a mission. We that's did, right. We didn't shoot. Ugh. And apparently, if you go out on an AC-130 and you don't get to shoot a test fire or live. When you come back, the crew's supposed to ball you up, but there were only six of them, and there were it was me and my ranger buddy, so they decided not to. (laughs) (laughs) They suggested it. They said, "Normally, this is what happens." And I said, "Well, well, if you want to be embarrassed (laughs) by the army, proceed." (laughs) And the the corporal that was with me was like six two, two fifty, and he was just grinning ear to ear because. That's, yeah. He lived for that kind of stuff. Yeah, we're going to go but. back and be an
1: Air Force over here.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and they're like, uh, uh, we, we're, we're going to pass on that yeah. one this time. We're like, that's a good idea. Thanks for the ride. <laughs> but that was cool, being able to see all the sensors. And actually, was we were flying over Charlie Company, um, which I had deployed with a couple years before. And so it was cool to see the mission from up there and see how the sensors work and what their fidelity was and how much um they could really pick out on the ground and it was better than i thought it would be in some cases and and they couldn't see some things that i kind of expected that they would be able to and so their ability to decipher that uh that ir and that thermal and figure out what's going on on the ground was pretty impressive yeah. But it was, it was awesome.
0: Because you talked about being on the opposite end of that and being a sniper and um, yeah, I, then mis, misinterpreting what you were doing there. Yeah, and AC-130 yeah. AC
2: yeah. that was supporting us was like,
0: hey, you got a guy. He's outside of your blocking
2: positions. Oh. And I was, like, listening, and they gave, like, a little a, a bearing. And I was like, that's me. Hey, that's me. That's, that's me. me. <laughs> 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 that, I'm, I'm one of you guys. You see
0: me wave my hand? Yeah, that's
2: terrifying. <laughs> I think the, the coolest thing about the AC-130, though, was the – the gun bunnies that got to run the guns cuz everybody else is you know they're fly boys right and these are just we're talking to a fly boy there yeah. and talking, well you know <laughs> well, it's a different <laughs> breed you know and you go and yeah. they got these these you know these gun bunnies man they're just yeah. two young kids two specialists they're like we got the greatest job in the world and we're flying around with a 40 millimeter machine gun i don't know it's pretty it, it was cool
1: i think uh if you're on the <clears throat> excuse me if you're on the ground having that ac130 overhead it Has got to be a warm fuzzy. Oh yeah, like just orbiting. I think my favorite nine line I ever got was it was up in northern Iraq, and uh, there's an AC-130 in the stack, and they were just laying waste to everything down there. And uh, they wanted one 500 pounder, and the mark <clears throat> in the nine line is always NA. Yeah. But this one was it was Spooky's mark. Yeah. And like do you you know call contact? And it's just. 30 millimeter just destroying this tank. And I'm like, yeah, I think I see it.
2: Yeah. You're not going to miss I,
1: that. I, I think it's gone. But if you want, if you want a bomb, you can have a bomb too. Anything worth blowing up is right. worth blowing up yeah. twice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you're going to drop orders. Right. So did you get to release it? We did. Yeah. No? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was, that was a, it was a good sortie. You know, it's yeah. pretty, all those things. I mean, it's, it's always good. Right. Though Again, I joined right, just to help the guys and gals out on the ground so when you can affect the fight, and you know, hopefully, you know, we're showing up. You're turning the tide if it's one yeah. of those type of scenarios. Um, and I think that night we we definitely did. We were we were pretty busy. I think we came home pretty light. Yeah. After it was all said yeah. and done.
0: What What did you hear from those guys who did get the opportunity to meet the ground guys afterwards and stuff? You know, I think or at least at some point afterwards. And
1: yeah, it's one of those that if you get to meet the guys, um, I, I've never had that opportunity. The I think everyone is incredibly humbled by it, right? Because you realize it, it's easy to disconnect mm-hmm. relative. Uh, uh, when you're, you know, at 25,000 feet or 20,000 feet, like you feel it through the radio, right? Uh, and you, you know, guys are in trouble. Uh, so you want to do everything humanly possible to help out, right? But at the end of the day, you're still separated by 20,000 feet and you go back home. Like it's still, it absolutely weighs on you. Uh, but when you, uh, a good buddy who got a distinguished flying cross uh, for saving a bunch uh, of dudes uh, in a place. And it was, it, you know, he was, he was just crying when they were reading the citation, right? Uh, because he got to meet those guys. Uh, one of them said, you know, he got to come home to his newborn son, right? Because those guys, they were in the fight for their life, right? And I think that's what it's all about It's when it can come down to you can effectively turn the tide of a fight to hopefully... Let guys go home to see their loved ones. Like it doesn't doesn't get any better. I'm actually, uh, you know, my one story which doesn't compare to that is I'm gonna record a recorded podcast on Friday uh, with an A10 guy who actually he lost his canopy and his gear, and we were texting back and forth. And he's like, "Hey, I think you were flying in OIR at the same time I was." Turns out we high five. We missed each other. His unit was showing up as my unit was leaving. But we my second to last sortie. Uh, we were, it was a really busy deployment, as I mentioned, um, fighting ISIS. But my second to last sortie for me uh, was one, uh, the heart rate was through the roof. We came off the tanker and our call sign was Weasel. So we peel off the tanker and we check in with the controlling agency. And in A10, here's our Weasel call sign. And his first thing is like, Hey, Weasel, I'm Bullseye XYZ. So giving us his position. He's like, I just lost my motor. I'm going to get out the jet so we turn and we just haul as fast as we can his wingman he was on the tanker through a fan blade through the motor oh wow right at the end of getting gas his wingman was critically low on gas getting ready to get onto the tanker so his wingman has to jettison all his stores get rid of all his bombs and they start turning and pointing to al-assad which yeah, you know, this time you know, that used to be a base we had a pool at right we set mm-hmm. tankers at
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and the week before i was dropping bombs right outside the wire of al-assad so not a friendly place anymore um, and so, you know, you hear that. I mean, this guy is going to jump out of the jet. So we turned and we we went as fast as we could to get down there. And kind of the humorous part of it is uh, I was the wingman and I said, hey, you want me to switch over to the JTAC because there's a restricted operating zone there. I can switch over to the JTAC and see if there's any rotary wing or if there's anyone, you know, in the area. I check in and there's a French mirage on the frequency who was just throwing up on the radio. He's just like talking about. A road scan he's doing, and, like, I cannot get him off the radio to, like, talk to the JTAC and say, Hey, dude, you have hog flight that he's probably going to punch out in your AOR, and it's going to be bad. The fortunate thing is he limped that jet into Al-Assad. as wingman landed right behind him. Uh, it turns out, like, my flight lead, Flint Locke, uh, he was doing a rotation a few weeks later at our combined air operations center doing staff work. I uh, got to meet that A10 pilot, right? But that time, you know, it, it, again, it doesn't compare to someone who's like, I've, I mean, for the A10 pilot, significant emotional event. Uh, it was a significant emotional event for me. Uh, it ended the best way it could have, you know. But that was the time if he had punched out there, you know, it wouldn't have gone well. When
0: yeah,
1: yeah, you know, like we had a deployment, we had a Jordanian pilot that I had mission planned with the day before. He went down and he ended up on the news. Not the way you want it to be, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So public execution, um, and it's just in the end of the day, this is a dangerous business. Someone like has to do it. And there's when you sign up for it, you you know you're signing you know your life away, right? And it's going to be yeah. you know to sacrifice for the person next to you. You're going to do whatever you can uh, so that they can go home. Uh, but in the end of the day, hopefully everyone gets to come home. But that's not that's definitely not the case.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you talk about signing up so you can support the guys on the ground. Hopefully you did it. And I think it's fun to razz each other. We all do it. But I know for a fact, like we could not get to the places we got to without the stack we had above
0: us. Obviously we need aircraft to get there in the first place, but everybody had a role though. Like, you know, and we talked about this on one episode about what rangers do versus, you know, um, Marsog versus seals versus right. whatever. The same thing goes to conventional army, Navy, air force, Marines, air guys versus yeah. ground guys. Everybody's doing something to make the yeah. magic happen. Well, sometimes the guys on the ground,
2: they're like, well, I'm the guy on the ground, you know, and you think like you're a badass, but you know, as a sniper, like your job's like watching, communicating, things like that. The thing that makes me really, really awesome is I have a magic button on my chest and I press it and I'm talking to a jet and the guys I'm fighting with, they don't know if that's, you know, goose and Maverick up right. there, you know, like, so just doing a flyover, right. they're like, holy shit. Cause those yeah. guys have seen that movie too. The bad guys have seen it. Like, this is not going to be good. They're going to invert and mess me up. Yeah. So they just have it on VHS. Yeah, exactly. No, they got DVDs. <laughs> <laughs> Shitty ones. But you know, just, just doing a show of force. Yeah. You know, that that's enough to turn, turn the tide, the, I think to the people listening that haven't served, you you assume that you're, you're winning by these large margins. And it's not, you know, the Patriots versus the Falcons. Yeah. It's, it's like the Olympics. You're winning by a fraction of a second, you know. By, it's by thousands. And just the presence of a helicopter or a jet or w- whatever it is, that's enough. You know, even if it's an RD unit, you know, doing a, doing a test fire. Uh, close enough that your area of operations is going to know, okay, these guys have, yeah. you know, high Mars on station. Like that's something to consider. That's sometimes enough to be able to walk in, get your target and walk out. And then you don't have to get into a gunfight. So
1: yeah, it's, you know, it's one of those, it's, it's not given. Right. Uh, and that's what you were talking earlier about uh, near peers and things like that and getting ready for the next fight because it's not a given that we will win I no. mean, it's it's margins right um and we obviously have very capable and very well-trained people and great equipment but the bad guys do too and i, I yeah. mean a great i think way to look at it, at least at a very like unclassified rudimentary level if you just look at what isis was able to accomplish in their pr department yeah. Right. Like they put some like high level videos, right? And that doesn't translate to their fighting. Uh, but they're very, I mean, they're capable. They're capable fighters, capable individuals. Yeah. Um, and that, you yeah, know, that's, that's a very primitive look at it, but I think it translates across the, the spectrum.
2: Yeah. Yeah. You look at their level of technological sophistication and you think, okay, but I know the guys that went there and fought yeah. them. And that, it wasn't an easy fight. Yeah. And that's, you extrapolate that to a sophisticated enemy. And the other thing is like, what, what margin are you going to win by? You know, like there's no given that you're going to win, but even if you do, what's it going to cost you? Yeah. And I think people forget that good enough isn't good enough when it comes to when you have Americans coming
1: home, body bags. If you, if you talk to air peace loan, could you imagine world war two, right? When you send up 70 aircraft, right. With like 12 individuals on it and 20 of them didn't come home. Like. Today, you know, if we have a couple of mishaps and we lose yeah. a couple of airplanes, like the Air Force, like we like pause, I mean, granted training, but like pause, yeah. what's going on here? Like, yeah. you know, in the World War II spin up, I mean, in the training base, you yeah. have like four crashes a day you're like, yeah. that's fine. Just bulldoze it off and keep going. Uh, but it's a different dynamic if people are expecting, oh, we've always, we've always won and yeah, sure. A couple of people will die, but. Yeah, that's not always going to be the case, especially, I think, if you are talking to a, a near peer.
2: Yeah, God forbid that ever happens. Yeah, but hopefully it doesn't. I, I, yeah, I think that's kind of lost on people, that it's it's not outside the realm of possibility, but that might be a different conversation.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's interesting times, but it's so easy to forget, I think, uh, and and really lose track of, what's going on in the world, uh, and getting wrapped up. Like we, we live in a world of first world problems like in the United States, you know, at least in my opinion. And there are definitely significant, there are definitely significant problems. Right. But no one worries about for the most part, where am I going to get fresh drinking water? Yeah. You know, I'm not, again, I, I sleep at night and I'm not worried about someone kicking the door down and dragging me and my family out because they disagree with my bloodline or my views, you know, and yeah. like you go, again, like you guys can attest, like you go to a lot of countries in the world, that is not a guarantee. And if you lip off on social media or to even your neighbor, right, then yeah. the people are going to show up in the middle of the night and take you away. Like we don't have to worry about that. We live in a pretty good country.
2: Yeah. I mean, well, we even just natural things. And there's a lot of people that are still at the mercy of nature. and. Yeah. Flood came through, or some other event happened, and now they're cut off from groceries from outside of their area, and they're back to getting water where they can yeah and weren't. that's it's a tenuous but it's very tenuous that we have all of these things. It doesn't take much. I think that's what people don't understand. It takes a lot to make the infrastructure, but it's the snap of your fingers and things it aren't available anymore imagine if you if you had a catastrophe at your uh wherever you're getting your water from and then you have something like coronavirus and you can't go get bottled water i mean i live in new york and we had e coli in in my city's water so you couldn't drink the water but we could go to the store but if that happened in the middle of lockdown well it'd been over yeah i mean people are going to suffer
1: look how we reacted with toilet paper oh my gosh it's crazy (laughs) could could you imagine if it was something as a necessity such as water
0: yeah that's not just toilet paper missing, but then when you got to go get something that you're not used to, like Scott's or Kirkland's or whatever. Right. <laughs> <It was> yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: Yeah. I'm yeah. kidding. Yeah. But no, I'm not. Yeah. Actually, because it was well, funny there because. were people that were complaining about things like that. I know, you know they, they their are. Their favorite yeah. kind of bacon or their favorite kind of.
0: Yeah. It's like, damn it. I software. went down there yeah. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. I wasn't there. And it's like, okay. And. Yeah. Yeah. We forget these things. <laughs> We have become a country that is um, very comfortable with that. And it usually takes um, major catastrophes that we would probably equate to like hurricanes, something of that nature, earthquakes that, you know, we see usually at a distance, we see, oh, I feel really bad for Puerto Rico, for, you know, South Florida, for, you know, whatever, New Orleans and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, imagine that at a massive scale. And it's not isolated, and it is affecting your bubble. Yeah, on I mean, a daily basis.
1: It's really easy. Yeah, it's easy when it's at your fingertips on your phone that you're just watching and to detach. Right, it comes back to the same mm-hmm. thing when you're at twenty thousand feet. Yeah, like you know, you can detach somewhat from it. But uh, you talk, It was a two thousand five the tsunamis, right? And, and granted, it was spread across multiple countries, but yeah. wasn't like three hundred thousand people. I mean, that just obviously life altering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, natural disaster, and that's only a natural disaster, so we're I mean we're down the rabbit hole with this, but again, when it comes to it, it's like we uh, we live in a really good country with a lot of freedoms that it is a slippery slope and it can yeah. go away just to the snap of a finger um, and there's got to be people that are willing to to step up and and answer the call like yeah. for me you know it, I think it was easy it was nine eleven right but people are joining and serving now who were born after nine eleven, and now it's a history lesson probably in seventh or eighth grade, right? It's yep. not, they weren't sitting there watching. It was the younger bars. than that.
0: John, yeah. we've got people joining the military now that were born at nine eleven. Yeah. And that's what comes, I need to go back to the propensity. Like why, I don't know, why, why does someone join
1: and serve? How do we get people to join and serve? Um, yeah. you know, maybe, yeah, obviously we have patriots, right? Like I think if you, took a knife and dug it apart I'm like mine would be tied to patriotism and why yeah why I join, right? Yeah. Uh there's job security and things like that. But mm-hmm. you know, if now if we're we're selling job security and and benefits, like who is the military competing against? Um
0: Right now uh, with coronavirus, it should be rather good. You'd think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You'd think. think that, hey, the government's hiring come on. Yeah. You yeah. know? It's <laughs> Yeah, interesting dynamics. Yeah,
2: but there's a lot of catching up to do on that side of things. I mean, we want a more professional soldier. We want them to stay longer. We expect more of them, the equipment and leadership. Everything is more sophisticated. Uh, But we're still, you know, you go to basic training, and you're still treated like a draftee was in Vietnam, the go-to-war, go-to-jail guys. Not to the same extent, but it's still rooted in that. So the culture hasn't caught up. Yeah. So why would you go and be have this huge expectation, this huge responsibility, and then you get treated like you should be digging ditches.
1: You know, it's funny you say that. Um, and this is a generalized statement, right? But I, I did have experiences and one F sixteen pilot in particular who he was counseled multiple times, but like obviously there's an officer enlisted relationship and that hails back, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years, right? but like our enlisted force specifically in the air force has never been more educated. And I can say, you know, I was my air show time was phenomenal. And the reason it was phenomenal because it was fun, but I had a team of 10 maintainers that were, we were a team like we were removed from everyone else on base. We had our own building, we had our own jets uh, and we operated to get the mission done and they were tied. They, I mean that for them, they saw the mission impact right away, right? Because it was in front of their face when I took off and flew. If I didn't fly, and the jet broke they took that personally versus the jet takes off and flies away for 40 you know it takes 40 minutes to get to where it's going it's gone for three hours and comes back like pilot hops out and leaves so there's like ownership that's tied to it those guys were some of the most phenomenal human beings that i know very smart um very talented and you i, I would have failed i think as a leader right to I looked at them as peers, right? Mm-hmm. They're obviously, you know, I was the guy in charge on paper, right? But it was a team effort and a team decision when it came down to a lot of things because, again, they're really well educated. So, our, our system, like, there is a time and a place, probably like, go take the hill. I'm sure. Like, well, that's going to suck. I don't want to do yeah. that. But, um, y- you know, you're competing against industries and stuff where kids who don't have their driver's license, for that's a whole nother thing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> You know, they can, well, I can go do this. I don't have to do PT. I don't have to, you know, I I can, I can smoke weed, whatever it is, and have all these freedoms. You're, you're sacrificing when you go in the military. You're giving up freedoms. Uh, But that's a tough thing to compete against, I feel like, in today's world now.
0: Oh, it definitely Uh, is, especially uh, with the changing environment. I mean, and I think that there is probably a little bit more realization that, um, I mean, I was a bit shocked. I'll be the first to admit when you sign up and you swear to defend the constitution. And yet the de- constitution, you got UCMJ that overrides it. So, you know, it, <laughs> you lose, like you said, those freedoms and uh, some of those things that you're supporting or defending in your own. And so, yeah, people wise up and go, well, I don't know that I want to do that. And it does go back to that culture that I experienced and people before me experienced a lot in that, um, you know, you didn't necessarily say you weren't or uh, were a veteran, or you served, or anything like that, because you weren't you weren't revered. Yeah. You you obviously were too dumb. You you know couldn't get a job. Um, you almost were going to jail, and you had a choice: go to jail or go to the military. And that was the mindset that was of a generation, you know, and before. And now it seems like veterans are. Held, you know, we just had Veterans Day and everything, and I see some veterans who say stuff like, you know, I don't know why we even have this day. Well, embrace it. I mean, embrace the fact that people out there are willing um, to offer discounts or whatever to veterans and they want to say thank you, and that's the way they sincerely want to do that. Uh, But I get the understanding, you know, I understand why some people say that. Uh, You know, and and their concern is that it's becoming too marketable. You know, we've turned into a, you know, stores are doing this and it's buy mattresses and it has nothing to do with Veterans Day. It's an opportunity. Yeah. Like
2: it's lost its meaning or whatever. And I get
0: that. Sure. But I think we need to also understand that we've come a long ways um, as well. I don't want to see us go back to that because of generations today, not appreciating and understanding because it could quickly turn on a dime. Well, yeah, uh, and if we
2: do go back, you think you're talking about the impetus to serve. It's like, for me, it wasn't so much patriotism. Obviously, I love my country, but I grew up on, like, Vietnam movies and stuff like yeah. that. And they like to highlight the bad things that happened and the negative things that soldiers did. And then you get a little older and you're like, well, it's, you know, these massacres happened or these war crimes or atrocities happened because you're sending people that you were supposed to send to jail. Right. And there are powers that are greater than me. This war is going to happen anyway if... I know I'm not going to commit any, any atrocities or stand for that, and you're not going to either. So I better go because they're going to send somebody. Right. And he may not be suited in his character or his or, or whatever. And then something bad is going to happen to somebody who's caught in the middle of this conflict. So, you know, I and I've had that conversation with other people. They're like, well, why would I go? I'm smart, young, I have options, but I have this drive and I don't know where to answer these questions. And they're not particularly patriotic, although they may yep. love their country. And I'm like, well, if you don't go, then somebody else will go yeah. and they're not going to have the same ethics or morals or they'll send somebody that doesn't want to be there and that's going to come out the wrong way.
0: This yeah. goes back to the challenge that you're talking about, you know, in in recruiting for the Air Force and trying to find not just the right people. When you start narrowing it down for being able to pass an ASVAB, being able to make it through the maps and the physical, being able to have, you know, the um, no uh, charges or anything against them, being able to, you know, meet certain standards and everything else, and then you're trying to get that small percentage of individuals that might even go on and do something even more extreme, whether it could be flying and being a pilot or going into the soft community or doing whatever, the numbers start going down and down and down. Um, and it's, uh, it's an interesting time. And, and I think, you know, personally from being a former recruiter, I can only feel that this is probably going to be, um, we we're at a crossroads here right now where, you know, this could be one of these things, like I said, Hey, the doors are open, we're hiring, Right, or this could get really ugly. And from from a country standpoint, that's pretty scary, you know.
1: Yeah, we need we need smart young men and women to join and serve. Paul interesting, like perspective. I haven't I haven't thought of that way. Like, well, if you you know you're smart and capable, if you don't do it, then yeah. knucklehead over here, he's going to take yeah. your spot. Um, it, know, it it's fascinating. I actually before I went into commercial aviation, I was really pursuing the business path. But the amount of guys that I talk to, who are in business, like former software, a couple of former fighter pilots, like it's just not a path most pilots take. Usually go commercial aviation. But it comes down to it. I feel like the there's so many smart young men and women that go through the military, and it's a great system to give you a, a huge new bag of tools to take out and then go into the the private sector and and conquer. Yeah, because all the guys I was talking to had, in some very high spots at various businesses, and, you know they're all like former green Berets and things, but they like, obviously they were sharp to do the mission they were doing and then they just took that skill set and just it was learning a
0: new new language and just went out and crushed it. Absolutely. Yeah. I would agree. And then you know you look back at the greatest generation. I mean, a lot of those they did the exact same thing. They returned from the war, they started up businesses that became highly successful and a lot of them, you never knew that they even served yeah. within the military, but they took that tool set with them. Um, yeah, and, and it's going to be up to us to, to help market that or help, uh, present that John, we could probably go on again, you know, for this whole thing. And, and I hope that we do get a chance to do that because, you know, we are very like minded in what we're doing in our podcasts and how we're bringing guests on to tell their stories and all of that. Um, but I appreciate you taking time out at least to come down here and, and share your story.
1: Oh thanks thanks for having me I enjoyed it I look forward to the next time and then when you come on the afterburn and we we'll just we'll talk even yeah. more
0: Sounds good We good. like it Yeah